Welcome to Libre Lounge, a podcast about free software, free culture, and all the other interesting aspects of user freedom. With Christopher Lemmer Weber and Serge Broklowski. Hey, Chris. Hey, Serge. Let's uh, continue that discussion we had last time about free software and uh, how money plays into that. Yeah, we deluded ourselves into thinking it would be one episode, but very quickly realized there's so much to discuss. Yeah, so let's let's dive into it. Um, the distinction we made last time was we said that uh, the models for, for uh, funding free software were on a spectrum of completely charity on one end and completely profit-oriented business on the other. And we gave some examples of more charity-ish um, structures. And we said that this time we would talk more about the, the more business-oriented structures around uh, free software funding. Yep, so and the, ca- the same caveat we gave last time is that a lot of the things we're going to talk about in this category are sometimes done by nonprofits, just as in in the other one, a lot of the ones are done by what we would, you know, say non-charity businesses. So yeah, we're focused more on. I think I think the way I would look at it is we're focused on methods here, or the method of fundraising, rather, or, or the method of, of fiscal distribution, rather than the tax structure of the organization doing doing the work. Right. So at the last episode, uh, we decided to not tackle the topic and uh, left it as a teaser. So what was that topic? Uh, was that, I think it was academia, wasn't it? Uh, the 20% time and the academia the 20% stuff. Time. We decided right. to kind of right. roll we, it into we, one. That's right. Right. So uh, when we think, so let's actually, I think it's easier to discuss the 20% because academia is so tricky and gets complicated. Right. So do you want to explain the 20%? Okay, let's let's talk about the uh, mythical 20%, and then we can discuss how it actually tends to play out in practice. So the mythical 20%, I think, was popularized by Google, who had this 20% project thing, and they said, you know, you get 20% of your time, you can work on whatever you want. And that sounds dramatically exciting to many free software developers, right? So, you know, like, oh, 20% time for anything I want. That's one day a week I get to spend on my favorite free software project, right? In reality, I think what very often ends up happening is you get this, you know, that gets discussed, but other things end up taking priority. And very often, if it's not kind of a core part of your job, usually that gets bumped off first if you're in a crunch. And many software development houses are always in a crunch. Yeah, I think there are actually a couple of, of parts to this. So, so, so first of all, yeah, the, the very early Google idea was that they wanted to fund what they called innovation, and you know what the, what they they said was they wanted to fund innovation. So they said that the, the way to do that was to to treat Google like a bit of a brain trust, and to keep it fresh, they would say, okay, if you come to work for Google, you can take twenty percent of your time. And work on whatever thing, uh, whatever thing you think is worthwhile. Um, but that's Google a long time ago. So that has changed in, in from from articles that I've read. And um, I'm not going to say that Googlers have told me this, but but knowing Googlers, I don't think that they're spending 20% of their time um, on on these projects. 
Um, but from from public articles that have come out about this, uh, as you say, th- this this has changed uh, in a number of ways. So first of all, um, now these these projects have to be somewhat more directed, and they have to be experimental with the idea that they might turn into a product. Um, secondly, you know, as Google has grown, the 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 type of talent that they've brought in has changed, and so they have people that are not as uh, they're they're not all software developers. Um, they'll have you know people that are doing other tasks, you know, marketing, but even you know site reliability engineers and things like that. And so they may or may not have those twenty percent opportunities either. Um, and I don't know if the twenty percent was ever supposed to be used for for the for free software development or maintenance. My understanding was that it was, it was always just kind of an experimental thing, kind of like um, uh, a hackathon or a, a game jam or something like that, where a company is just trying to see what kind of ideas they can, they can get out of people to, to be the next big thing. Um, so, so that's the mythical, sorry, I, I went on a big tangent there, but this mythical idea of a, of a 20% being used for free software, I don't know if that was ever really the case. Well, I do know that a number of, okay, so I, this is really not a Google episode, right? So the, but I do know that some stuff did make it upstream because of that 20%, you know, flexibility, but I think that it's not as common as the vision of it is. And I think it's decreasingly common. And I think that also we, we're not trying to talk about Google specifically or actually even specifically the 20% time as being a specific thing that companies implement, but kind of that general idea that, oh yeah, we're going to hire you. And some of your time, you're going to get to work on the stuff you want. Um, yeah, kind of I think that's thing. right. And so, so the, the, the way that, the way that gets expressed it was formalized in this 20% rule, but, but as you say, this is um, when you're trying to attract top talent in the same way that these large companies and institutions will have a really nice campus, they might have nice dining services or other things. This idea that, that you know, you can follow your passion um, is very attractive. Right. So what I think often ends up happening in reality is that very often um, some company will be using something and this is much more common and they need some sort of feature. And one of the team developers on the team says, well, we could make that feature happen. Uh, And it actually is in the company's interest to get that stuff upstream because it's much less difficult than maintaining a fork. And that does happen quite a bit. Yeah, that's right. And I, and I think this, um, isn't discussed as much in free software circles um, as it actually happens. So when, when people discuss free software funding, it's rare that they say, oh, well, so free software gets funded because um, or th- through, through people working on other things. But it was, it's very common when you're a talent, when you have a, t- a talented team of software engineers and they're, and you're using a tool to simply add a feature. And as, and as you say, um, you, you, you have an incentive. Your organization has an incentive to get that that software um, patch upstream, if for no other reason than you know you you don't want to have to repatch the software going forward, right? That that alone is motivation. It's it's a pain to integrate patches into software. So you want you want that to to be upstream. You want that to be in the in the the quote unquote real version, if if possible. 
you know, it's kind of funny. We actually didn't slot anything in here for this, but there's a there's an unintentional upstreaming that also happens. Uh, that's you know, Ben GPL enforcement actually, uh, where a company didn't plan on releasing things upstream, and then it turned out they had to. Um, and that is kind of funding some free software stuff. It's not the best method uh, when you when it's unintentional usually, but it, it it does result in some free software end up getting upstream. Yeah, uh, that's true. Um, the, that's the whole idea of of some of these licenses. Although although if it's purely an internal tool, that's not distribution, and that's a that's a whole another legal discussion. But yep, let's, yep, talk, yep. let's 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 bring it back to academia and this idea. Um, I think many people are under the impression that uh, academic institutions are kind of charitable actors and software that gets just written inside of an academic institution is is automatically free and open source software. And, and that's that's not true. Right. I think like any other employer, they're technically your employer and they technically hold a you know, a copyright over your work. If you are doing this, you know, funded, you know, like work for hire for that institution. Right. And, and sometimes that work will get distributed as, as free software. Um, but it's not an automatic process and, um, academic institutions, um, especially in the United States, um, and then especially recently, have oriented themselves to make profit from their research and their work. And so it, um, the idea that they're going to just give things away is, is probably less true now than it has been in the past. Um, nonetheless, there is a lot of software that gets written um, in academic institutions and then uh, distributed and maintained that way. Yeah. I don't actually know any numbers about what whether or not that's on the increase or the decrease. It would be interesting if we could find some data. If if any of our readers have data or listeners have data on that, we would love to hear it. Um, yeah, and I, of course that gets tricky too because you know there are more. Um, it's it's kind of this. There's a a statistic that I heard, and I don't know if it's true, but there are more blacksmiths now than there ever have been. And you think, well, why would that be the case? And well, because there are more people now. <laughs> so um, even if even if blacksmithing is not as important a uh, an occupation, uh, um, just by the virtue of the number of people, uh, the the number of of people in in uh, in that profession has increased. So there, so academic, uh, we, we'd have to adjust for that too. But but uh, yeah, that would that would be very interesting to to read. But we, we've spent the, pretty much the whole time of this academic thing so far correcting against a view that, you know, academia, you know, doesn't necessarily produce free software, but still quite a bit of free software does come out of academia, at least in some circles, right? So language research, especially, I'd say. Programming uh, language research. Yeah, yeah, programming language research. So um, a really good example of this is Racket, which uh, one of the Racket grad students i i've met described racket as being largely funded by an army of grad students hacking away at racket right so um and i recently had the uh kind of the privilege of visiting northeastern's uh language uh research lab and it was pretty impressive the number of you know people who were you know racket contributors who were um, also working on all these interesting software projects. And in general, that lab has a lot of um, freedom to push things, uh, you know, out in the open as free and open source software. 
And I would say also that that's generally true in the computer science arena, um, where 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 the line between research and code are so complex and nuanced. Um, you know, p for example, if if you're working on code, um, you know, if if your research involves the Linux kernel, well, then your you know then your code, if you want to distribute it, has to be under the GPL. Right. And so yeah. And and I think there's also an, another interesting part uh, part of academic research, which is there is a movement and push of people to have reproducible research. And a great way to have your research be reproducible is have it be free software and also have it be buildable by other people and, and executable by other people. So especially if you're in computer science, but even outside of computer science, and that's been a large portion of the drive of the increase of it was originally called IPython Notebook. What has it been renamed to? I'm trying to remember the name. Uh, Jupiter? Yeah, Jupiter Notebook uh, is a, you know, which is both a, it's kind of like org mode and that it had, uh, except for people on the web who are not Emacs users necessarily, uh, where, you know, people can collaborate, pardon me, on documents and uh, um, and can include code that can execute. And it's very popular in the scientific uh, academic community as a way to be able to, you know, include statistical information and all sorts of things right into your document in a way that's very highly collaborative. And, and that, and because of that, um, we've seen at least the fundamental infrastructure of Jupyter Notebook and other things like that, you know, uh, I, I, I think, you know, there's been some, uh, I, I would assume quite a bit of contributions have come upstream. Actually, I haven't verified this, but I know that there, I know some people who have been pushing for, well, if we want to do reproducible research, then free and open source software is the way to do it. But of course, a lot of code that comes out of academic papers, like a lot of it, uh, is not actually buildable or runnable by the general public. It either never gets released or actually just ends up being some dump that effectively nobody knows how to compile. Yep. Yes. Yes. To all of that. <laughs> um, so, so I, I, you know, there is a, there is a, a movement generally within, within academia to, to move to open, um, to open research, whatever the field. So, so I think um, computer science is a little bit ahead in that code is, Code is the is is the the way that computer science research often happens, um, and free software is is very much part of that. And I think it's hard to get away from free software if you're doing any kind of computer sciencey thing, especially on a budget as as uh, grad students often are. So so yeah, so software gets developed in in uh, in this kind of charity way sometimes. Uh, by both companies and uh, and academic institutions, and and since we sometimes uh, so we're not just a software freedom podcast, but we're user freedom in general. I think we also uh, step into um, there. There's also been a push that we might we we should probably mention about um, from academia, um, largely uh, sometimes actually very much so driven by. The people who write the books uh, or who are teaching um, for uh, uh, what we would, might call open educational resources. Um, and those are uh, freely licensed, usually under, uh, you know, one of the one of the Creative Commons licenses, although not everybody 
ends up actually choosing one of the Frias and Freedom Creative Commons licenses under that label, but that's a separate issue. But the uh, um, but what is interesting is that there's a push there, similarly uh, for um, uh, open educational resources in academia, and that's not software itself. But it is, um, and, and I have two good examples of that. One of them is called the uh, American YAWP, which is Y-A-W-P, I think. Uh, I'm verifying that. Yep. And uh, that is a, an online and collaboratively built American history textbook, which is uh, um, fairly progressive and is, you know, uh, freely licensed. And there's another one uh, which... I am forgetting the name of, which is an operating systems textbook that uh, came out of the University of Madison that's uh, fairly popular, um, which is an open educational resource. And there's there's other ones as well. And uh, I think this stuff is great. And academia is a great fit, right? So a lot of these uh, journals and, and publishing organizations in academia are just straight up predatory, where they will take, um, you publish an article, and then you no longer actually have the rights to your own article anymore that journal has rights to your article and you have to lease it back from them uh and like that kind of and the the original author never gets paid it's bad for them and it's bad for the community but there's a pressure to do it um so there's a movement in academia to say hey you know this academia is a great fit for making these kind of changes yeah and and, and i i think the when we're talking about um, educational resources or software, it's really very much the same thing in, in that it's the same, it's the same benefits. It's, it's why do we have to pay for something over and over again when we can just, uh, you know, have it once and then all use it as many right. times as we in want. The, in the age of distri- digital distribution, both educational resources and software are non-rivalrous goods. Right. And we, and we, and we talked about those, issues of rivalrous versus non-rivalrous, and we talked a little bit about uh, marginal cost in the, in the previous episode. So um, we can we can kind of um, just we can just reference it in this one, and 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 uh, if anyone hasn't heard the previous one, they can go back. Yep. Okay. okay. Yep. Oh, sorry. You want to go ahead? No, no, you do. Okay, okay. Okay. So the next the next topic is um, kind of we we touched on this a little bit. With the, mentioning that the Document Foundation with LibreOffice has the, you know, click here to donate thing. But there's a, a more direct form of the donate when you acquire access uh, uh, method. And I think that two examples that really come to mind to me are uh, Ardour and the Blender Market. So Ardour is a digital audio workstation. And uh, if you go to download it on their website, I'm going to actually just click through the process right now. So I go to ardour.org and I click get ardour now. And just, and it says download program or source code. And it says, you know, the the ready to run program or or source code you need to build it yourself. Okay, uh, let's assume that I just want ready to run. I click that. What select the operating system? Well, I suspect if I select GNU Linux, it's going to give me some package manager's instructions. So I'm going to click Windows just as an example. I click that, select my system architecture, 32-bit, sure. Um, and I click, yes, I want that. And then it gives me payment choice. And it says, subscribe, your choice, 1, 4, 10, or 50 per month. Updates and downloads as long as your subscription continues and access to nightly development builds. Uh, or single payment, and then just get that that version 
that I that I download or get the free slash demo version, which periodically goes silent after 10 minutes or upgrade to 5.12 and there's an upgrade process. And there's an FAQ thing there that says, I thought this was free software. And it says, Arduer is free in the following ways. And it says, um, basically, the free software type philosophy thing. And it says, you know, we like to say Arduer is free as in free speech, but not as in free beer. And if you want the convenience of using the ready-to-run version, you need to pay for it. And I think that this is interesting because, you know, again, this is a place where they're kind of um, the... You know, you're you're being kind of directly. Uh, um, they're much more so than you know LibreOffice saying, you know, yeah, you, you pay up. Yeah, I mean, and I, I'll admit when I first saw this, um, I was a little bit offended. I was like, well, gee, you know, that that's that's against the spirit of what we as a community um, do. Uh, there's nothing stopping someone from making their own build of Ardour and releasing it. Uh, it's free software. So, you know, if, if, if you or I or, or somebody listening were motivated, they could, they could set up a little build server. They could build the software. They could put it out there and, and everyone could, could build it. So, so what's the motivation? Um, for someone to go ahead and, and do this. Well, there's, I guess there's two motivations. One is convenience. You know that if you're going, well, you presume that if you go to our doors website that you're getting the officially good uh, build and there's no um, bad things added. Um, and you're supporting the, the organization that created the software in the first place. Yep. Yep. Um, so that, that, um, and, and I mean, you know, we, we do say in free software, there's nothing wrong with, and in fact, it's a, even encouraged to charge for software when you can. And so it does seem very weird to me, but I don't think there's anything wrong with this. Uh, um, it, it, it feels weird in that, um, it feels like it's, it feels weird in that it actually kind of, I think the thing that w- feels weirdest to me is that it, there's a certain amount of incentive that the funding come from places that are not kind of the free software operating systems. And, but I don't think that it's wrong. It's just very strange. Yeah. I guess where um, I, I want to talk about other organizations that have done similar things. Um, I, I do. I, I think that for someone like you, who's brought up concerns about reproducible builds, I, I would have questions about reproducibility um, in a project like this that's saying we'll pay, you know, pay us and we'll give you a build. I'd, I'd question, um, you know, their commitment to reproducibility, but yeah, that might also just be on me, right? That there's no, there's no evidence. I have no evidence that any of the organizations, and I don't know if there are others other than our door that do this, but that, that, that anyone's actually making this harder, although it does, frankly, de-incentivize them from, from making reproducible builds. It's slightly de-incentivizes. Um, but, yeah, another organiza- but another organization that's done a, a similar thing is the Free Software Foundation. Um, when they were distributing their software um, on tape and on disk and sending it to people, that's a very similar model. If they were if if they were sending out binaries along with source code, that's exactly the same model. It's a convenience thing. Yeah, and 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 we talked about this a bit in the first episode, but the FSF 
was originally funded, and actually most of GNU, um, a large portion of GNU, um, you know, the foundation of GNU that we have on our systems was paid for because um, the Free Software Foundation paid software developers, and they paid them to work on what was considered the most, you know, there there were a lot of volunteer contributions, but um, people paid for discs and they paid for manuals and that helped pay for GNU. Um, and when the internet came around, that became, that became like a, it, there was, there was less of this, hey, you know, it, there's less of kind of a, a middle process in the same way that there is this middle process where you're visiting this website and it's like, hey, pay up. You know, there's a similar thing that happened with, you know, like, hey, or maybe we can even say, hey, please pay up, right? Like you don't have to, but like, you know, you should pay up here. There's a similar thing that happened when you got tapes back in the day. And uh, um, and that doesn't exist anymore with the way that Gnu is typically distributed. So I agree that it, it does have a very strong similarity there. Yeah, and, and I guess that's the the question in in my mind is is this unethical behavior? Uh, you know, the the term you used in the previous episode was ransomware, and obviously this doesn't fit the definition of ransomware. Uh, that, that that it doesn't fit the definition. <laughs> it doesn't that you fit the definition, the but it it, it it does sound more ransomy. I agree, even though it's not a related topic. Yeah, and, and or is this is this the equivalent of of sending you a tape uh, or a disc in in a world where we have the internet? Is is building a binary for you? Uh, the equivalent, because frankly, you could make this binary. Presumably, you could make this binary yourself if you had all the tools and you spent the time setting it up. Uh, you you could have it. Um, you you could set this up and, and distribute it. Well, and if you're a user um, of a free operating system, you do get a binary just handed to you, right? Uh, like you know Debian or Geeks's Build Farm or Fedora or whatever. They've got a package you can just download of Ardour, and you don't have to do anything. It's just there. Yeah, um, you know, I guess we didn't we didn't think about this, Chris. But dual, I guess this kind of ties into dual licensing, in a sense. Uh, well, okay, so it's a. I don't agree that. Well, I I agree that it has a weird feeling that's kind of similar, but I think that it's. But there is no relicensing here, right? It's the same. Project. It's the same work. It's the same right. work, and that's it's, a big distinction. That's a big a, distinction. But I would say it's spiritually connected in that you are you are creating a an artificial barrier for non free software users. Yeah, um, that's so the maybe, weird thing is that it's a it, that's a weird thing is that it it does have some connection to non freeness that that is how it gets there. Um, like which is that it's non free operating system users that are kind of in the middle, and we talked about whether or not. Uh, free software app store, or like free software package managers could do a similar thing, but they aren't currently. Uh, and, you know, I guess it, it also ties in. Here's another direct tie in. Uh, you know, what if you buy Wesnoth off of Steam? Or what if you get, you know, um, or or something else like that? Like that is. Well, Endless Sky is, an, is, a, is a game that we talked about in uh, our games episode recently and it is available on steam right and that's a proprietary app store um on which you can get some free software and you can pay for it there and now it's a revenue model but that revenue model is now tied to 
having some sort of proprietary thing. And it seems so strange to me because like you don't actually really need a proprietary thing in order to have this, but clearly it is working for people to have that, you know, that kind of artificial aspect does help incentivize people to pay for some reason. And that does, I think that also, it, it kind of bugs me not only that the proprietary thing is there, but also that I feel like, oh, we shouldn't need it though. And yet clearly it is providing uh, um, incentive for people to pay up. Yeah, uh, there's there's lots of potential reasons that, that could be the case. So I, I want to mention uh, one more in this category, mm-hmm. actually, which I think is really interesting. Which is the bl- which is a thing called Blender Market. It's not actually run by the Blender Institute or slash Blender Foundation, in my understanding. It's run by a separate company, which I think is CG Cookie, um, and they do a bunch of training materials and stuff like that, which I think are you know not open content training materials, but they have this Blender Market e-store type thing where you can go on and download a bunch of content and but all of the and you can download plugins you can buy plugins but blender is under the gpl so when you buy those plugins on there they are they you know they have a requirement on there that that they be gpl compatible which means that you technically could take stuff from the blender market and just uh you know distribute it separately from the blender market but people are paying up there. And I think that that's kind of interesting. And I don't think that the Blender market would be doing this if it weren't for the fact that Blender is under the GPL. And I don't think that many plugin authors would actually be doing it either because there are, there are a lot of plugin authors that are like cranky about the fact that they have to give back. Do we want to jump from – because this Blender market thing makes me – sorry, this Blender – I forgot what you called it. Um, a blender market. Uh, so this is not run by the Blender Institute, but I, are you mm-hmm. thinking we should jump to the other blendery stuff we talked about? No, I was thinking that this that this uh, tied into WordPress. Oh, And yeah, the fact sure, that WordPress is also uh, GPL'd and that there are a million plugins out there that are not free software, even though they legally should be. No, I think I think that... I think that uh, well, oh, they they aren't legally, uh, and they're they're violating the GPL, is what you're saying. They're violating the GPL, right? Also, um, the case but with I don't. Drupal, but um, but but yeah, legally, I mean, maybe that maybe that's a tangent that that because we're not actually talking about GPL violations, rather we're talking about uh, funding free software. Right. It, it just it just made me think about. Well, my my thought process was, gee, I wonder if there's something in the Blender Cloud terms of service. That blender says, market. Oh, even though the two software different, two different things, Blender Cloud and Blender Market. We'll get to Blender Cloud. Okay, later. sorry. So Blender. So I wonder if there's something in this Blender Market uh, that says, oh, if you distribute the stuff that that is GPL'd, you are violating the market and will kick you out uh, uh, because I, they're not legally allowed to do that. I don't believe so. From what I've talked okay. to somebody who is a free software enthusiast and has sold a couple things on the blender market i think and they seem to think that they that the blender market people were being legit they were complying and being good actors with the gpl um but you know um as far as their requirements go right um but Mm -hmm. i think they also don't like overly advertise that this this stuff is free software and that you have these rights right 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 okay that makes that makes sense i mean it's that's good to hear um, that's good to hear that that, every, that that this company is being a good actor in the space, and I'm I'm very glad that that's the case. Um, but it is funny that, they, she, that they're well, and I I should check again, but I think that it's not very visible that it's you know that it's free software and that the that that stuff's 
you know, that it's free and open source software. So, uh, but but it, but it also brings up a, an interesting point uh, when we talk about this convenience, which is, well, why isn't someone just deciding to to turn around and uh, redistribute it, right? So if if I was an Ardour user um, and I was bothered by this uh, binary um, thing where I had to pay for them to for their for them for this binary build, um, even if I paid, I could turn around and say, oh, by the way, um, I don't think you should have to pay. And I could turn around and offer it on my own website. So why don't why don't people do that? But that's but again, I think we're going down a rabbit hole rather yeah. than talking about the funny. I mean, software. there's another interesting rabbit hole, which is since anybody can charge for something like Blender itself, there are also kind of scam companies that uh, do just switch the name on Blender and then actually sell it and don't inform people there either. That um, I guess that's a completely different tangent. Two interesting yeah. tangents that we should not go that into. We, right that now. we should not go into. Yeah, <laughs> fair, so, fair enough. So I'm clicking, um, yeah, I'm clicking around on the Blender Market thing, and it does mention one of these things says royalty free as the license, and and it's it looks like it looks like the license is mentioned. Um, yeah, the license is mentioned, GPL and stuff like that. But you know the default. Um, but it does say, you know, $40 purchase and like, you know, $15 light version. And, and you're right. You, like somebody could take all this stuff and just dump it somewhere, sorry, somewhere else. But I think this actually ties into the thing we were talking about in the first episode, where we also know many people who do use proprietary apps, uh, like who use proprietary game distribution services and other proprietary app stores who are perfectly capable of not paying for it and also uh, not complying with the legal requirements set out, you know, you know, quote unquote, pirating it. Um, they're perfectly capable, but they choose to to not do that anyway because they want to fund the development model. And I think that that's actually a source of inspiration here, which is that if you put up this type of thing, you say, well, you should purchase. Um, people are purchasing, especially if you don't just say, do you want to purchase? But you just say purchase. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so we've talked about this sort of convenience model. Um, we've talked about this. I would say this Blender thing is kind of in between. It's it's not pure convenience. The Blender market. It's, it's yeah. a yeah. The Blender market. It's it's a little bit more ransom e but it's not entirely it's it's, well, it's somewhere in between yeah i think ransom e ransomware we should we should not blur even though it sounds convenient because of how ransom is we should keep ransomware as a specific okay. thing Fair which enough. is where it's it's done but in order for the public to get it they have to the public has to raise yeah. enough money fair, so, fair enough um, i i agree with you I, I won't i won't i won't abuse that term any further Okay. Um but I, so, I agree that there's mm-hmm. there is an aspect where, you know, you're still being told you should pay up right here. Uh like at mm-hmm. this point. And uh then you get it. Okay. So then we've talked um so j- moving on a little. Why don't we move um, into you 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 had a good segue with WordPress there. Maybe we should talk more about Yeah, so the next so topic. WordPress so WordPress is interesting. So there are a whole bunch of of companies and and these at this point um, we should say that that fundraising is often not um, exclusive to one uh, approach. So they might, you know, an, an organization might take one approach and another approach at the same time, or they might take, you know, two or three approaches. 
Um, they might say, oh, donate to us. Oh, and by the way, we have this other thing um, at the same you, time. And there's nothing and I wrong with that. You and have books from the FSF, even though we also have donated to the FSF. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, so let's talk about ho- – so, so there's a, a whole uh, area of free software companies or free software projects that have a hosted option. Um, and so let's, let's, let's define that a little bit. So what we're mostly talking about are programs that run, um, on a server somewhere. Right. So WordPress is an example of that. WordPress is a, a content management system. It runs a lot of big websites and blogs and it, it, it's, it's, it runs on essentially a web server somewhere on the internet and WordPress itself is free software. You can download it and run it on your own computer. You could set up your own server somewhere, um, but they offer a service, a commercial service, where they will run WordPress for you. They will run it on their computers, and they'll handle all of the complexity of of managing a service like that for you for a price. Yep. And uh, um, so this is kind of the... the the service approach when we talk about, you know, um, uh, you know, so there's some server that's hosting things for you. As you said, it takes care of the complexity. And WordPress is actually a pretty good example of a good actor, actually. They, all their stuff's under the GPL. They, uh, um, they're, they're serious about the GPL. They, um, the stuff that they host, they don't, they don't do an, as far as I know, I don't think they do an open core type approach. The stuff that they release is the same. You know, like, I don't think that, you know, the, the infrastructure hosting, you know, meta software is necessarily free software, the internal stuff, but the WordPress itself that's running is free software and it actually funds WordPress upstream, right? So that company actually does the development of WordPress itself and is largely funded through hosting WordPress sites. Yep. Uh, yeah. So there's a, there's a lot of terms we, we've kind of bandied about here. Um, I, I may, I may have, I don't recall if I use the word self-hosted, um, self-hosting is, is basically when you basically run it yourself, um, use the term open core, which I guess, I think we'll, we'll define that a little bit later. Um, and in an ideal world, uh, hosting a service based on something that you've created is a great idea. I I think it's a really nice idea in, in, in theory. Um, the one caveat I have to that is that it creates a fiscal incentive to making your software hard to self-host. I and agree WordPress is a good actor in that it is easy to run WordPress. It's super easy to run Word- WordPress, and they make it uh, easy, and they give instructions on a number of platforms. But there is a financial disincentive to making it easy. Yeah. Uh yeah, I agree with that. And it's an interesting that's an it's an interesting thing you bring up there. It's kind of the classic uh um uh job security type thing where somebody, you know, like intentionally made uh, but I, I actually can't think of many examples of projects intentionally making themselves hard to host for that reason, but I think you're right that there is an incentive for it. Um so so other projects in this category, another one that's pretty uh, clear to me, I think, is Newsblur. 
Uh, I haven't really looked at News Blur in a while, but I know quite a few few people who they got really big after Google Reader shut down, and it's a similar web based you know feed reader and uh, um, and kind of absorbed a lot of the um, Google Reader enthusiasts who were frustrated when it shut down. And I think they're running pretty much the same software that they're that they're hosting. I haven't verified this. I don't know if they have proprietary extensions or if they've maintained that. But I think that that's, that was the case a number of years ago. I think it still might be the case now. Um, and OpenStack is a weird case. OpenStack is actually more of the 501c6 um, trade organization that kind of has a bunch of companies um, paying for OpenStack development together as a pool, or it was. I don't know if OpenStack's as big as it used to be. I mean, like it, a few years ago, OpenStack was like, like the hot shit that. Oh, okay, I can't. Uh, another. Uh, you can curse. Warning. I mean, we're we've 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 I think we've already decided that occasional cursing is okay. We, okay. we don't curse very often. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, OpenStack, the hot shit. At one point, I don't hear about it this often, but you know that was, you know, another thing where, and I don't think anybody really ran a. Maybe somebody did a completely like. A completely the vanilla open version of OpenStack. Ironically, I think that almost all vendors, including Rackspace and etc., were had a modified proprietary version. But it is an interesting example where there was funding of OpenStack because people were hosting OpenStack. Yeah, that's that's right. Um, I, I mean, I could go. I think we could have a whole discussion about why OpenStack isn't as popular, but but that's uh, not relevant to the to the, the, the matter at hand. Do you want to talk about GitLab? Because I think they're an interesting segue into um, uh, something that you talked about earlier, which is open core, or do we want to wait on that? Why don't we hold off on Git, uh, GitLab um, and, and save it for the open core section? Cause I feel like okay. that's a, that's a good, uh, um, that's such a huge topic. I'd like to uh, give it some space. Okay. Yeah. So want to talk about advertisement or premium placement? Sure. So, uh, you know, a good example of this might be, um, so actually well, let's I, talk about what we're talking about first, right? So yeah, okay. before, before we talk about examples, let's define, let's define some terms. Okay. Define. Um, uh, so you're using a piece of free software and you might see an ad in the middle of that free software. That's very unusual. It, I, having used windows, uh, you will find that at various times, just there'll be an ad in the middle of a program. Um, that is not something that we in the free software world are used to. We're not used to seeing ads in our, in our programs. It just doesn't, it just isn't, isn't, isn't done. Um, but more subtly, there's, uh, situations in which, uh, a service is prominently featured either as a default, um, or entirely disableable. So, so let's talk about Firefox, uh, the Firefox toolbar and search bar. Uh, the, the way that the Mozilla Foundation, one of the ways that they fund themselves is that they, um, they, um, auction off who can be, uh, what, what the, what your default search engine is. So you type a term and it will take you to that search engine for the results and companies bid for that. And it it had it was Google for a long time, 
Um, I think it may be Bing on some platforms. I think it was Yahoo for a short period. Um, but that is a, that's something that a company can pay for if they want. Um, and then the, the other one that comes to my mind, uh, was in Ubuntu Unity, uh, their toolbar when you searched it also searched Amazon. I don't know if it still does that, but the big deal there was that it was not something you could disable. Well, yeah. And, and that one was very troubling too, because people might search in for private files and then Amazon was able to find out information about that user that may have been very private stuff that the user was not even aware that those queries were going upstream. Yeah. Uh, and also it's somewhat contextually, uh, we in the free software world are not used to that. are not used to our private information even possibly being leaked in that way. And it wasn't something where you could easily, you know, flip a switch, run a command and turn it off. It was, it was intrinsically built into the software and, and built hard to remove. Yeah. So, well, um, that's an example of, of, but obviously that there was a, there was a, um, a financial, um, agreement in place that it, it wasn't just that, that Ubuntu and, and canonical thought, Oh, this, this will be, this is what the users really want. They were, they were clearly paid for it. Right. And I, I actually think that the, the Firefox thing doesn't bother me that much because it's pretty easy to switch. And also when you do a search, it's, more clear to me that I'm going to be doing a search across the search engine. The the Unity thing bothers me a lot more because it wasn't made clear to the user. It wasn't just, it wasn't really a search for the benefit of the user as much as it was. Uh, well, I'm not sure that that, uh, you can, a lot of people are not happy with the Firefox default search thing. But I think that to me, it feels a lot more defensible uh, than than the Unity thing. I don't know. How do you feel about it? I, I I agree with you. I mean, I think it's it's similar to um, there are there are plenty of situations where uh, you know uh, there might be a, a piece of free software where um, it might say, oh, if you, if if you need something extra, for example, okay, so the example that's coming to my mind is is Nextcloud. So Nextcloud doesn't doesn't do hosting. Um, but uh, if you use their, I think if you use their app and it, and you, it, there's an option that says create an account and, and then you're like, well, what does that mean if they don't have hosting? Well, it'll take you to a list of hosting providers. Now, I don't know if Nextcloud pays, uh, or, you know, uh, has a relationship by which uh, those those listings or advertisements are not, but it wouldn't surprise me and it wouldn't bother me. If, if, if that were the case. Yeah, I think we'll have more things to say about Nextcloud in a moment. Um, I, I uh, Just a couple more things on this ad stuff. So um, so the Firefox default search thing is, is funny because it kind of is ad-ish, but it's a little bit functional. The um, A more explicit version of ads is, so I actually don't know um, if Wikia contributes upstream to, to MediaWiki. Um, it would be interesting to find and out. MediaWiki is the software that runs Wikipedia. Yeah, it runs Wikipedia and it runs a bunch of other wikis out there. Um, and uh, um, and that is one thing that's that is interesting though is that Wikia is another example of a service thing where it's hosted by somebody, but 
the, you know, you can pay for a service such as WordPress by just paying the WordPress company, but the way that the Wikia things are paid for is by ads, right? So that's a, a different choice on how something can be paid for. And it is completely possible to run a free software hosted type thing where in, you switch out the um, the hosting, uh, the paying for hosting for advertisement. But there are a lot of people in the free software space who are not comfortable with advertisement because of, you know, the surveillance capitalism type um, aspects to it. Um, there are have been attempts to make uh, advertisement things less uh, icky. I think the best example I've ever seen was Project Wonderful, where you just paid to have something on a website for a day and you didn't get any information about who um, who the specific people were that was on there. So it was uh, relatively surveillance free. But I, the Project Wonderful ended and pretty much all ad things today, I think, are very surveilly. And I think that that adds to discomfort about that kind of advertisement model and a really so a really uncomfortable thing that a number of so some some projects uh um it have used is something called uh at one point there was something called open candy uh i think it still exists which is can, classified by uh as malware by many groups um which you know they kind of sold themselves as oh if you've got a windows binary why not wrap it in the open candy installer and will install adware on your computer on the person's computer and that you know is a that's the most uncomfortable version to me of the um of the let's let's get our money through people who are on proprietary distributions cuz that one feels more exploitative than just hey pay up at this point yeah and I, and you bring up a really interesting and important distinction here um, I think for many people, this uh, advertisement and the nature of advertisement has has changed. Uh, you know, advertisement of the past the past was passive, right? You know, it was it was a billboard or uh, a page in a magazine. And what we're talking about now is not just a display of an ad, but but data collection. And so that it's so it's a lot more sinister. Um, than than the type of advertisements um, that that I think some of us think about when we just think about advertisement. We th- we think about what we see rather than what's being done under the covers. And so, really, what we're talking about is capitalizing on um, inform on private information. Right. And that's I think that's the really disturbing part. I mean, there there's an aspect of oh, this is annoying to to look at, but the but the spying aspect is is the is the really is the part that um, gives me the willies. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, why don't we move on to the next one, which is uh, support? Yeah, I think this is so. So let's talk about support. Um, support is basically, hey, I've written this piece of software, and I'm an expert on it. And if you would like uh, help with it, pay me. And there are, I think this is from the very beginning of free software, a model that um, was was thought about and adopted. Um, the the first the the big the big two companies, um, and of course now I am blanking on uh, the the original one. The the one that I'm thinking about was Cyclades 
Software, which was uh, a company that was uh, maintaining CVS, the version control system. And also Cygnus. Um, Cygnus. But Cygnus is the one that I was blanking on, so thank you. Yes, so Cygnus, which was maintaining basically all of the, well, that you could pay to, to get support for the GNU tools. On, but essentially. It was, but the way that they made money really was support for it on Windows especially. Uh, they they had the yeah. the Windows release. So it comes back again, you know, it's got this proprietary operating system tie-in in a way. But they didn't just do that. They also did, um, uh, my understanding is they also did, companies wanted extensions to GCC and stuff like that. And and they could pay Cygnus and stuff like that to, to add it. Is that right? I I, I don't remember that. I, I that that's a little a before my time and um not not a company that I knew much about. But I you might be right. I definitely know they stay. They they were doing support. Yeah, I'm, and I'm so not since we're talking about support, don't mm-hmm. don't take the thing that I said as fact because I actually was not very active when Cygnus was uh before it was acquired by Red Hat or I don't remember when it was acquired by Red Hat. Um, it was acquired by Red Hat pretty early on, I think, like. In the the mid mid late nineties. Okay, well um, that's a good tie in to the next one uh, of a right, to, which is Red Hat. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, yeah. So the so Red Hat's a pretty classic um, example of a company that sells support. Right. They they uh, they the reason that you go to Red Hat is that they have they have produced a product. That is well tested and integrated, at least presumably, and then you pay them um, for for their expertise, for their help um, if something comes around. Uh, that's that's basically it. And, uh, and com- in some ways, they're in, mm-hmm, yeah, sorry, well, you go. Companies want somebody to pay. Uh, in many co- large enterprise or organizations, are used to and expect the ability to pay and call up somebody when something goes badly and to have updates, you know, effectively paid for. Yeah. Um, and there are uh, whole industries, sort of cottage industries around um, having people in your organization who are certified in that, in, in the, in that software, in that whole galaxy of software. And uh, Red Hat has done a, a good job in, in, in doing that, they have also, uh, although there were some some times that they pushed the limits, they have always produced 100% free software. Yep. Uh, so there is nothing, even on the server end, that is non-free that they create. And then now that's an interesting tie-in to IBM for another reason as well. Because uh, IBM's the other big historically uh, free and open source software support organization, starting in like the, the early 2000s or late 90s is when I think they started pivoting into that, right? Yeah, uh, I, but I, I want to hear what you have to say about IBM. Well, because I don't know much about them in this area. Well, it's because they bought Red Hat, right? Oh, right. Okay, I thought I thought you were going to talk about their own. I thought I thought you were going to talk about their own history in free software. No, no. Um, I, mean, I mean, I think they've been also doing support. They're not as good of an actor as Red Hat in that they do proprietary software. I think sometimes it's been, you know, they've been often a good actor, but not always. And sometimes it's mm-hmm. hit or miss. Um, but I think that, uh, and that's why the acquisition of Red Hat by IBM, I think, uh, I think kind of hit home for some people about like, oh no, what's this going to mean? Um, and that's mainly because, uh, and right now it appears that Red Hat's kind of, 
still able to do its own thing and stuff like that. Uh, and IBM's kind of just, you know, uh, letting them be fairly independent. But, you know, I think there is some worry from people in the community of, you know, Red Hat's been such a good actor in the space that we hope that that's able to be preserved. Yeah. Uh, and I, th- I think we, it's, a, it's a good idea here to contrast this, um, this support because it can get complicated because Red Hat's very much on the, on the good end, um, they're very so. So where they've been a little bit tricky is that they have um, it's 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 not that easy to, to strip their trademark out of their software um, and make a derivative product that is not Red Hat but that is essentially Red Hat, um, and that's where they they were a little bit um, there was some contention, but. You know, if you compare them to a company like Canonical, um, Canonical, which produces Ubuntu Linux, is, um, you know, Ubuntu is free software. Um, at least some versions of it are, and there is some non-free software that gets bundled, um, usually in the, in the form of drivers. But Canonical has proprietary server software. Yeah. So it's also interesting mm-hmm. in that both Fedora, sorry, both Red Hat and Canonical have also had this kind of community, um, this kind of community, have had a corporation and a community on the side, more so historically with Canonical, I feel like, than now, right? So in in the mid-2000s, uh, Ubuntu was kind of, uh, I said hot shit before, so I get to say it again, it was really hot shit, you know, like, uh, in fact, a lot of people you know, Ubuntu was synonymous with them for GNU Linux. And, uh, um, and there were all these Ubuntu loco things and, and stuff like that. And similarly, um, uh, Red Hat has, you know, they're the kind of community version of things is Fedora and Red Hat as an organization has been very supportive of Fedora. Um, and, uh, um, but that, that community, a lot of people there are employed at Red Hat, but there's also quite a few community members who are just enthusiastic community members. And uh, sometimes that can get contentious, but very oftentimes I think there is a kind of synergistic relationship. Um, but I think that, you know, actually I know that we have some people who are listening to this podcast who were uh, very enthusiastic about, uh, you know, Canonical and Ubuntu uh, at the time that the local stuff was really big and uh, and and feel like it did not go in a great direction eventually. Yeah, um, something that that when you're talking, I was thinking about was that both of these companies have produced software that is not in their direct interest. So in the case of Fedora, Fedora. Um, you know the the kind of business customer that Red Hat has is not going to necessarily be as interested in in some of the um, the UI stuff GNOME. and yeah, essentially GNOME, right? They're, 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 uh, if you're if you're a large you know financial institution, you don't really care that much about GNOME, but 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 GNOME is something that Red Hat has uh, funded. Through their through Fedora essentially, mm-hmm. which is which is in a lot of ways their experimental or community version of the software. Even even though you know even though again it's all free software, this is where they they put out more of their uh, 
the, I don't want to say avant-garde. I'll just say, you know, experimental stuff. Well, and it's a, um, it's a community that, that kind of refines what ends up becoming actually the next release of Red Hat. Red Hat, yeah, that's right. Red Hat Enterprise Linux, because yeah. um, that distinction is a little different. Going back historically, there was a, a distribution called Red Hat Linux, um, and that distribution doesn't exist. It it kind of split into two, one one being Red Hat Enterprise Linux and one being Fedora. Yep. Um, Ubuntu is a little different in that there is only one Ubuntu um and then the company will support certain releases. So they'll have certain long-term support releases of Ubuntu that they support. Um, but again, it's it's not directly in Canonical's direct financial interest to to start developing certain software features, and yet and yet they do pay for it. But not to the degree that I'd say red hat has and i think that it, it they did so more historically than they have recently but i think we don't really want to get into the you know kind of yeah no, no no but, but uh, what i'm saying is that that these that these support companies have an interesting history within the community of also creating new features and supporting other things yeah that's that, true that, that that there's that there's this relationship and that's what i'm that's what i'm thinking about and wanting to focus on and the other example that 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 um, I was thinking about and we talked a little bit about um, privately was Nextcloud. So yep. Nextcloud is a, is a company that makes um, – it's hard to explain what exactly Nextcloud is. Nextcloud is a platform for self-hosting a number of services, um, starting with file management but also um, communication platforms. So – video chat and also calendaring and also um, they have a uh, social aspect. This yep, it's, um, it's running have, activity uh, office collaboration. Yeah, it's actually, yeah, well, the, yeah, it's actually uh, next cloud, next cloud social is. Yeah. Yeah. So now act next. So actually, well, I mean, I'm biased in liking next cloud because I had many good interactions with uh, its founder, Frank, uh, blanking on his last name at the moment, but he uh, uh, he was actually one of the big uh, early supporters of ActivityPub uh, at at the W3C back when uh, he was actually working under own cloud. But uh, and uh, recently, uh, uh, Nextcloud shipped ActivityPub support, so you can uh, it's now a member of the Fediverse, and uh, and and they seem like one of those institutions. So obviously, that biases me in their favor, but they actually seem like one of the institutions that like is one of the, you know, good actors that we can point to and be like, Hey, look, you, you can do this stuff. And, uh, and here's a really nice example of a company that we think yep. is, is good. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're, they're great. Um, so that's the support approach. Um, we, we, so let's kind of moving on. We talked a little bit about, um, the container model, right? Where, where you basically, the the stuff inside the disk is free, but the disk isn't free. Uh, not not Docker style containers. Let's be clear. Yeah, no, we're talking about distribution uh, medium. Right. So you know, so if I give you a CD-ROM of full of free software, well, the 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 stuff on the CD-ROM is free, but I might charge you for the for the CD-ROM itself or the USB key or the, whatever it is. Um, so those container models. Um, 
are not as popular as they used to be because the internet has, has made that uh, a lot less useful. But people do sell and organizations do sell um, cool stuff related to um, free software. So the FSF sells little, you know, they sell t-shirts and they sell stuffed animals and they sell printed versions of manuals. Even if those manuals are out of date, it's because you want a, a physical reminder of your connection with the organization. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And it's actually, so, um, one of my favorite examples of this was, uh, um, so I've talked about Blender a number of times previously, and and the last time I mentioned it on this episode, I mentioned Blender Market, which is not run by the Blender Institute slash Blender Foundation. Um, but something that the Blender Institute has done is uh, all these open movie projects, and I think they are really cool. A, B, you know that it's a whole episode in itself about you know why I think that that initi- those initiatives are great. Um, you know they release the source code of the movie as free software and the way, or sorry, as, you know, the, they release the source to the movie in the way that we do with, you know, free software, which is pretty cool. They also release, uh, you know, and then they release the actual, you know, compiled movie alongside it. Uh, and that's pretty interesting. And it's all under, you know, uh, free culture licenses. Uh, but what's also interesting to me is that um, the Blender Institute uh has these big open movie projects that go hand in hand with the development of blender itself. So uh, when one of these movies, so like as an example, big buck bunny, which was this kind of, you know, furry and funny style movie and starring this rabbit and these other animals, uh, you know, they needed fur tools and they needed better animation tools. And they had developers sitting alongside the artist who said, and the artist would say, we need this stuff. And the art, and then the developers would say, okay, and get to work on actually sh- pushing that stuff out. And it's a very direct, um, met, like interaction between a user base that's directly sitting next to a development that we haven't seen a lot. But the way that they originally funded that was by shipping out DVDs of these open movie projects. And, and now, uh, shipping out DVDs is not as profitable as it used to be. So what did they do? Well, they set up something they called Blender Cloud, which is a, you know, I think it's a something like $10 a month or somewhere around there subscription service where you can go on there and it's got all free culture. I think it's all, maybe not 100%, but at least mostly free culture um, uh, movies and assets of stuff used to produce those movies and also just assets you can use in general that it is behind this paywall. Um, but, and you can actually find a lot of it outside of that paywall, um, uh, probably even all of it, uh, but people are more than happy to pay for it. And actually the Blender Institute is doing pretty well. Uh, you should check out a video to see what a big space they've gotten and how, like, they've got some videos up on their YouTube channel and like how they've got some cool projects going. And I think that's an interesting example of transitioning from that um that kind of you know selling physical goods thing to the digital realm uh while actually preserving uh the user freedom side of things yeah that i there's there's a lot there and uh i i'm I'm surprised we don't see more of that but I, i guess blender has the um has the advantage of the the stuff they make being very compelling 
Um, I, I'm, I'm thinking there are other animation software programs out there that, uh, that, that might be able to use that same model, but, um, but you're right. Blender is, is kind of special and in, in that they've created this, this relationship with the community. Yeah. I'd love to see something like an open game project that's run, but with like the Godot people and the blender people interacting or something like that. I think that that could be really cool. You know, I'd love, or maybe an Ardour, you know, a movie, an album that gets released where, you know, the Ard our doer team works with that, that group. I think that this is an interesting way to advance free software and make it seriously good is to have, um, a funding model where the, there's some sort of output that's directly connected, uh, and working alongside the development of that project. Yep. Um, so moving on, uh, we we talked about features, and actually you just brought up features and new features in Blender, um, and you know there's a I think there's an idea in in outside of software circles for with non developers that that software is really really hard and only a very few people that have written the original software can possibly edit it. Or, or modify it or, or maintain it. But that's actually not true. And, and a lot of software development happens or modifications happen within an organization. So um, in, in organizations that I've worked in uh, where we had talented programmers and system administrators, if a piece of software had a bug or was missing a feature, it could be added by the developers internally. And it was often cheaper and easier for us to do that than anything else. That Meaning then to either try to procure some other software that did exactly the same thing, plus the feature we wanted, or to try to uh, go out and, and uh, pay for that development. It was just easier to take our existing talent and say, hey, spend a few days or a week adding the thing we need, Inclu- including me. I've done that. Yeah. Uh, there was a bug in, in some backup software and I fixed it and sent it upstream. Yeah. Um, it does happen sometimes where we, where people, there are institutions that offer, you know, you can pay us and we'll develop new features. I, I actually, um, have participated in that before where, um, I've both, uh, um, where I've both paid for things and also been on the recipient of being paid, but it's rare. Um, like as in terms of having an organization that is the developers and somebody's paying them, uh, to develop something specific. Um, it's, it's, it's pretty rare. And that actually starts to tie into the bug bounty stuff, which we'll get to soon. I agree that most of it ends up happening internally. And actually, so this is kind of interesting because we, we talked about this at the beginning, kind of tying in with a 20% project type thing and, and kind of that idea of that. There are also times where organizations will decide that they use some software and they want somebody really dedicated to getting some things upstream. Uh, I know of at least one Python developer who, um, at at least at a couple points, have, uh, you know, a couple of Python developers have been paid to uh, work on Python as a core part of their job you know, just work on uh, upstream Python features. You know, this has happened with Guido did that at Google, and there is also Dropbox uh, paid for some of the typing stuff inside of Python. Um, yeah, I, mean, I think there's a couple, I, w- I want to say there's a couple pieces to what you're saying. So first of all, there are also times that 
someone that an organization will pay for a developer to be there on staff, not because they want the source code upstream, but because they want someone who's an expert in that piece of software itself. Yeah. So that 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 issue of upstream is is not necessarily on the forefront. The the question of whether software changes should be sent upstream, and what we mean upstream is to the original development team, um, and and to be part of the officially blessed version, is that it it over time reduces maintenance cost. Right. Um, and, and- it's it's. There's a benefit. I just want to say, there's a benefit to an organization to have their stuff sent upstream. That that said, many organizations might be resistant if it's not in their culture to pushing things upstream. And we had a conversation. We had an episode recently with Karen Sandler where we talked about the contract patch initiative and how it can be really important and useful at the time of you negotiating your contract to work that in to make it explicitly clear that you are going to yeah. be um, releasing your stuff uh, upstream. And I think that that ties in with this bit. Yep. So you want to talk about, is that is that the same as paying for maintenance or bug bounties? Or uh, yeah, so, should we see that separately? So, well, I mean, so it's kind of funny because I think people get much more excited about paying for new things and they get excited about paying for maintenance in general, right? It's very right. exciting to hear about the cool new features that are coming into your software, but most development time is not spent on new features. If you want your software, yeah, ma- ma- maintenance is boring, uh, and it's just it's much more fun and interesting to have new things. Which is uh, ask just ask my dentist about that. Yeah, yeah, right. So it's uh, <laughs> it's uh, um, but the the sad reality is is that maintenance is actually oftentimes more important than uh uh new features and yet it doesn't get the uh the same amount of attention sometimes to dramatic uh detriment i i know you had a couple examples in mind uh well i, I we talked about ntp and uh lib open ssl oh, right on the previous episode um, though in the previous episode and um you know the, those are our core pieces of software but you can there's there's you know hundreds of others um, you know, software bugs are, um, they happen and they're, they're quite common and it's important that there be a constant, um, effort to maintain, not just when a bug is found, but hopefully before bugs are found or, or, you know, before bugs get into the, the released versions. I mean, that's the, you know, the, the invisible, um, you know the, the 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 best kinds of of problems are the ones that the people never see, right? They get fixed before they hit the public, and uh, you know. But I guess, <laughs> but where I'm, where I'm, what, what's? Sorry, I well, uh-huh. I when you said invisible, I was not sure what was coming, and I had this vision in my head of the invisible foot of the free software market, as in keeping things running. Oh. Uh, I, I, but, I don't but know why I, guess, I laughed my question and interrupted is, you. I'm sorry. Well, my, my question uh, is, it's okay. You didn't laugh at my joke, so I'm glad you laughed at something I said. <laughs> uh, um, is, I, I guess, I don't really know about this as a funding model. I don't, I mean, I we talked about that at the end, I guess, where, uh, at the end of the last episode, where I said, I believe that governments should be, should be funding this. Um, and we are seeing companies getting together and saying, okay, it's in our collective best interest to fund some of this stuff. But um, that's still not happening very much. Right. Open OpenSSL and GPG being good examples of stuff that got funding because everybody realized, oh, crap, all of our stuff relies on this and we need it to work. 
Yep. So I think toward the end, we're going to talk about um, f- non-free, because here we are sort of at the end. We're, uh, we're whoa, starting whoa, whoa, to... We've got one more. We've got bug bounties. we got one more? Yeah. Bug bounty, you're right. we got bug bounties. Yeah. Uh, well, well, we should, so we should define bug bounties. Actually, there's two different classifications, I'd say, of bug bounties. There is the original vision of bug bounties, which was a very free software oriented thing, which was, you know, we've got all these bugs. Some people want specific ones to be fixed. Um, and they'll say, hey, whoever can pay for this thing, you know, all I put up this money and whoever fixes it first, uh, you know, get some money. Uh, and actually, I did this recently, uh, in, in Geeks uh, GUIX, I, uh, I recently put up a bug bounty because I was having uh, um, I was having trouble with some stuff uh, where Racket I couldn't get Racket uh, certain li- Racket libraries installed on Geeks, and I said, okay, I'll pay somebody if they can fix this problem for me. And sure enough, somebody stood up, they they fixed it, and you know I paid them, and it it, it was my first experience actually doing one of those. Um, I did immediately run into one of the challenges where I felt guilty because somebody else started researching and did some work trying to figure things out, but they weren't the one that completed it. Um, And that gets into an interesting thing about bug bounties, which is, you know, um, uh, what happens when there's intermediate effort uh, in the bug bounty? How do you split that up? I mean, in this case, I think that somebody started doing research and then another person really did all like really did like brought that work home but i you know it could have been it could have been more extreme where somebody did half of the work and then another person completed it halfway and you know and that might be harder to split up yeah i don't know what to say yes oh. uh bug bounties which is by the way the structure that the european uh union has chosen uh, is is a bug bounty program i guess the the other type of bug bounty that you're going to mention is the is the kind where you offer a re- financial reward for finding bugs in your source in your in your source code that's right or and actually this is very popular right now in the proprietary world um uh where uh we're actually uh, proprietary services so um and actually, I guess proprietary software also in general, where uh, Facebook will, for example, and Google will pay people if they find an exploit in their services. Um, you know, well, it's much better to pay some security researcher than it is to um, have somebody just exploit it and make money that way. Uh, and what's also interesting to me about this is that this is a very different kind of bug bounty when you think about how it's presented and and worked on than the bug bounties and that we originally discussed. And one of the big differences is um, the original form of bug bounty I mentioned, somebody has selected a bug that they would like fixed. And in this case, some you don't know what the bug is going to be. You're just saying there's definitely bugs in here and it's almost always security related. And you say, okay, if you find that bug, um, you know what? I'll pay you. Uh, we'll 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 make that exchange instead, and then I can fix up my thing. Uh, and it's interesting to me because it feels like this is being very successful in a way that the original free and open source software vision of bug bounties has not really been. And I I wonder why that is. I have some thoughts, but I wonder if you have thoughts. Um, I do. I'm wondering if it's if it's relevant. Uh. Because we've got, because we've got a lot to talk about, but um, yeah, I would say that security is it, 
finding security bugs is, is is fun and it has some mystique and appeal in that way. Yeah, and I think also traditionally bug bounties, I know some people who did tried to get their living off of bug bounties for a while and one challenge they ran into was that it could be challenging to kind of hunt down the bug bounty once it got put up and once they fixed it and having both parties agree that it was satisfactorily fixed. Yep. Okay. So let's move on to the big one. Uh, uh, you want to, well, there's a couple big ones. Um, I think there there's open core and then, and then there's, I would say dual licensing is, is, um, is a second part. Right. So, uh, or, or what we also sometimes call proprietary relicensing. So let's make a distinction here. Uh, well, I mean, they might be, they're they're really pretty similar, though, uh, aren't they? Uh, or, or do you disagree? Why don't you define? I that? disagree. I don't think I don't think they're similar. I think that they're. I mean, look, everything is similar to some to some extent. Um, so let's let's start defining terms, and maybe and maybe something will come out of that. So. Open core is the idea that you have some piece of software. It's free software. And then you have, um, you, you can do this one of two ways. You either make a community edition and an quote unquote enterprise edition or a premium edition. Um, or you say, well, the, the main software is free, but we'll create some proprietary extensions and the extensions will be non-free. Um, and, the way this is often sold, sold being by by the company or the way they talk about it is, well, you know, you uh, regular people, um, you only really need the community version. Ninety five percent of the people only need the community version, and it's only for the for the you know the big uh, customers, either the proprietary software using customers or the big enterprise customers. They always sell it with those two groups in mind. They're the ones who need our, our deluxe edition. So GitLab here is a good um, example, actually. Yeah. You want to talk about it? Well, I mean, okay. GitLab uh, has GitLab's uh, community edition, and then they have the enterprise edition. Enterprise edition has a bunch of enterprise features that many people um, that that um, are non-free, right? And actually, what's interesting in this case is that the GitLab is under a lax slash permissive license, um, and the extensions are under a proprietary license. Um, there's no relicensing that's happening because the core thing is uh, um, does not require um, uh, reciprocation in the first place. Uh, the way the copy left requires it. So, um, and one other, one other, so this is kind of an aside, but one thing that kind of bugs me is that the proprietary version is also developed out in the open. Actually, I would rather not have the opportunity to accidentally run into non-free code that I could see that's under a proprietary license, because that actually worries me more than it just being closed off and I could never bump into it. Uh, but anyway, uh, that's, uh, that makes sense. And this is a pretty common model for, especially for hosted software or for software that's, again, supposedly meant for the enterprise. Um, and look, in, an, in a completely ideal world, this would be totally fine. Um, well, but in a totally has, ideal world, we wouldn't have proprietary software, but. Well, we'd have a proprietary software, right? So, but you, you, one could make an argument that this was a, an acceptable 
compromise. Um, I don't think it is. And I think that it has a number of problems. Uh, the first, and I think the most significant is that it de-incentivizes things to be in the, in the free version. And I have seen examples of, of enterprise edition, including features that, that they said, Oh, only large enterprises will ever need, but that, that, that's just not true. It's basically anyone who's wants to run this in a serious way. Um, and I forgot, I wish I remembered the, the, the software that I was looking at, but it, it, it was the community edition did not have LDAP support, but the enterprise version did. And I was thinking, but I needed LDAP support, even though it was a small system. It was the way all my users were stored. It was a, it was a, it's a user management system. It's, it's, uh, kind of like Active Directory, and uh, I was like, "Oh, well, I I can't use I can't use the software. It's it's not usable to me." And it was annoying to me that the features that I wanted and needed were already developed. It was it was basically ransomware in in that sense. It was uh, except it was ransomware that will, that that will never get released. <laughs> right. I think that that's not ransomware again but uh okay all right fair <laughs> enough i will stop using that term i love that term so well, much well it's such a it's, it's such uh, a good visual image it's hot, can i call it i guess i can't call it hostageware it's the same yeah. thing okay hostage. um, <laughs> it, um okay. but you know it's it's hey you, we have this and and uh, you probably are already running this software because it's free software. It's it's almost like shareware in in, in that way. It's like oh yeah, we'll oh, give yeah. you a little teaser. I agree with that. It is. It but, does have a shareware type connection there for me. And I'm just and yeah, it's just it it's just it just makes me uncomfortable uh, on a number of levels. And um, yeah, it, yeah, I agree. Yeah, keep going. Well, I mean, okay, so so I I yeah I I think I was actually just piping in to agree. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, and I, I guess the more I think about it, the more you might be right that open core and what, what did you, what, what did you call dual licensing? You called it proprietary relicensing. Uh, usually it's not that usually you end up, uh, the, the license, it's not usually that you end up having two licenses just sitting there. It's very frequently, oh, you'd like to incorporate this with your license, Let's work out a licensing deal for you. And mm-hmm. Yeah, that's 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 true. So so let's let's define this for people. Um, and I and I think I can I think I can point out where the distinction is. So if you're working, if you've got a piece of software that you want to release uh, under proprietary license, uh, there might be a free software library that you want to integrate. But you can't because the license prevents you from doing so. So under a proprietary relicensing model, you'd go to this, the free software developer and say, well, we'll give you a lot of money if you uh, can make a version of this uh, that's, that we can integrate with our proprietary software. Right. That's, that's basically it. And the, and the prime example in my mind is, is the QT library. Well, historically, the Q, it, wait, do they still do that? Uh, I don't know. Do they? I I didn't know they stopped. Okay. Maybe maybe they have. I'm I don't not know. sure, but I do remember that. But you're right that they that was a uh, model that was made available under Qt at least at one point. 
Um, uh, or I guess it's actually technically pronounced cute, which is really strange. Okay. Uh, um, it, it's, uh, but yeah, so the, the general idea, yeah, so you've got the general idea there. So, um, you know, maybe I've got, I like using game examples. So let's pretend there was a nice, uh, um, game engine that was under the GPL, uh, and I wanted to, but I wanted to make a proprietary game and sell it. And I'm like, oh, but now I have to release my game as free software and I don't want to do that. Uh, and so now I go to this, you know, game engine, uh, you know, the place where, and I'm like, okay, well, since I'm making a proprietary one, let's work out a, a license deal where you actually give me this same code, but under not the GPL, under, under something that's accommodating of my proprietary games license. Uh, and, and, and that, so that, but you'll notice that in order to be able to do that, uh, the organization that developed the software that's under the GPL uh, has to have the copyrights to the entire GPL software. I was just going to go there, which is that it that that these that this model demands that the copyright assignment from any contributor be given to them, which creates the exact type of one-way relationship that the GPL itself was specifically in its in its uh, manifesto and preamble were designed to fight against. Yeah. Uh, I go back and forth on this mostly against, but sometimes I'm like, eh, I don't care too much. And then like, I'm like, Oh yeah, it is a problem. You know, like the, um, so I have, uh, um, uh, gosh, I don't actually know whether or not to quote this person on the, uh, uh, so somebody, if they agree that they would like to be quoted on the episode, I'll, 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 add it to the show notes uh one said to me you know uh well i actually think it's not so bad because uh doing a proprietary relicensing is like a sin tax which i thought was a funny pun on syntax uh but you know like you're paying a tax to be able to do your proprietary sin uh and and you know and and so that's not so bad and like uh yeah i guess i kind of agree except you know I remember when I contributed to, I, I got a patch up stream to, uh, what was the name of it? Uh, it was some, some, uh, 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 localization platform. And I can't remember the name of it that we used for Media Goblin. And also when I was at, uh, um, and I, and I contributed a patch to this, uh, localization platform. And they're like, will you do the copyright assignment? And I said, yes. And, uh, cause I was like, ah, it's just a very small patch. And then they went proprietary, you know, and then, uh, and, you know, relicensed the whole thing and nobody bothered to keep up a fork from where they left it off. And that kind of left a bad taste in my mouth, you know, like, Oh, like man, like, you know, I guess that was always a thing that could happen because it wasn't just that then they kept a proprietary relicensing thing. They actually just decided to take the whole thing from that point forward as a proprietary project. Yeah. And I, th- I think where you know, you're, you're getting at is as you say, like somebody could have forked it. They've, they've chosen not to, but the, the, the social construct in which you, you made your effort to them was one in which you know you had certain assumptions right. and that they viol- they violated their 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 those assumptions to you if if they had come to you and said chris we we uh, will accept your patch 
Um, but because we may take it proprietary or we'll use it, we're going to give you money. You know, would you accept, you know, thousand dollars or something? Then I think your attitude might be a little different, but, uh, I mean, I don't know, but uh, at least for me, it would be different because at that point we are establishing that, 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 that the, this, that this is a for-profit, um, com- proprietary commercial endeavor. But by, but w- when you have to make, uh, copyright assignments to a, to an, a company that, uh, may take, take your, your work proprietary then things yeah it, it's it's un, unfair uh from yeah, that angle a power so balance that the copyleft was designed as you said copyleft was designed to prevent and and i think the 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 core difference between open core and proprietary relicensing is that uh open core is for services and uh m- most often for services and proprietary relicensing is for libraries. Yeah, I I would say that's a, maybe a, I I think yeah. that there there's been a whole bunch of back and forth on that term open core with with you know and what the heck does it mean? But I I'm I'm happy to but I think that you are making two distinctions between two things and I understand what the distinctions are that you're making. But I, I also want to get back to uh, so so that whole you know you pointed out that this kind of was antithetical to what you know copyleft was designed to you know prevent and i think that this actually becomes an interesting tie into the very start of this conversation we had in the previous episode which was that um uh copyleft is designed to you know so that well we didn't say this but we talked about you know the free rider problem and tragedy of the comments and most of this episodes or these two episodes we've been talking about how to avoid the free rider problem and how to prevent um, you know, just one person paying for all the stuff and getting kind of, you know, uh, not, you know, and bearing that cost without, you know, uh, having the rest of the community help with those resources. But, you know, when we talk about the tragedy of the commons and that field where people are putting their sheep in and some people are taking advantage of that sheep and kind of whittling away at it, to me, that feels, it feels like copyleft in many ways is meant to prevent the tragedy of the commons as opposed to the free rider problem uh, in its, you know, the free software enthusiast version of copyleft, the free software enthusiast version of copyleft says, Oh, look, we don't want this commons to be worn away. We want this commons to survive, you know, and in order to prevent it from being whittled away, uh, we've set up this license agreement that makes sure that everybody's fair in that space. Um, And, there's a different uh um and and that's to protect the commons and there's a different incentive that people who want to do proprietary relicensing have about copyleft which is actually about um the free rider problem and uh not tragedy of the commons type thing where they're saying okay the way to solve the free rider problem is to embrace proprietariness uh by having uh, that one person who pays the ticket up front, you know, they have some sort of deal with the rest of the passengers that come on or something like that. They're, they're trying to prevent that. Um, they're trying to prevent that one person from paying up front. And I, while I totally agree with and understand the idea to do that, the way that it's using copyleft is not to preserve the commons. It's to set up a financial enragement that is dependent upon software being proprietary and you might be able to say that's okay with the syntax side of things but 
it sets up an unequal relationship with the community. And that's where the real problem comes in, in my view. I, I agree. Um, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm thinking that we're kind of near the end, but I want to touch on one more piece. Uh, we hadn't discussed it beforehand. Um, because it, it it didn't occur to me really until these last few minutes, but everything we've discussed so far is 100%. Even e- even if it makes us uncomfortable or we don't agree with it, it is free software. Um, but lately, there have been attempts to misuse um, the term open source to things that are not open source and they are not free software. And in in uh, publicly to attempt to to stop the free rider problem, and I'm specifically thinking about the Redis license and a little bit the MongoDB. Although MongoDB has still stayed on the side of free software, um, Redis has decided. Wait, have not. they? I thought that the server side public licensing they were looking at was non was well. It's being debated about whether or not it's free, but it seems non free to me. Uh, it's non-free. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. That 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 we everything we have talked about thus far, including proprietary relicensing, is is acceptable right. as free software in the sense that you are allowed to do this, and 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 it meets all of our criteria as free right. software. The 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 Redis, uh, good, and you had the name of the. Of, of what they call this well, thing. Well, the server-side public um, license one is the MongoDB one, per- actually. And, I, the, and the other okay. one is the... Sorry. Uh, I think it's something community license or something like that. Uh, I should look it up. Uh, but it's a very... It uses yeah. a very... It's a very... It's a very double-speaky type term. Where it... it and that's right. actually what... That's what's happening right now is we're seeing... You know, that we, there's a term called open washing which is where you make something look like it's kind of free and open source software-ish when it's not at all. And, you know, that term's borrowed from greenwashing where, you know, stuff like the BP logo looking very green and even effectively giving people the impression that the BP company is environmentally friendly, even though they're not. A very similar thing happens where because open source is cool and developers seem to think that it's something that they want, companies are pressured to deliver on the open thing right but companies these are companies that are now actually saying wait a minute we're leaving money on the table by having things be open let's pivot outside of free and open source software and they're not calling it proprietary software they're pretending that it's open source software and that's where it's a big problem right and we i i I saw this a lot in the 90s where companies would would say things like well this is open software uh i saw that i saw made with open source software or, uh, well and <laughs> i was like well that doesn't make microsoft, any sense microsoft um, had a term for this actually they were calling it shared source software yes share well that was the, uh, yeah well they, they had that too the there's there's been a number of attempts to to degrade uh, free and open source software. And so uh, the reason I, I think this is important is it connects directly to your free rider problem. And what I think, well, what I want to say, and, and I'm pretty sure you're going to agree with me on is whatever we believe about the free rider problem, it's never worth breaking the social bonds of free software. Over. I agree 100%. So I think, I think that that, so uh, yeah, I think that brings us pretty close to a, a good wrap up. Uh, 
so the the summary is yes we'd like to fund free software there we've covered a lot of options actually um and there may be even some that we missed you know feel free to contact us if you think of one that you can think of that we didn't talk about and, and it also seems appropriate to me as we're ending this episode to mention that we're still in the phase of some of these nonprofit fundraisers for free software stuff and now is a good time to even though we've passed the end of the 2018 fiscal year in the u.s um it's still a good time to you know help get some of these organizations over the line because funding free software is important yeah and and if you're listening in the future it's still important whenever you're listening to this it'll be important it's it's important (laughs) um so uh you know get in touch with us um by the way so since this is our, uh, well, I don't know what episode this will be when we finally release it, but um, we'll definitely have under 10 episodes. We are absolutely looking for your feedback. We are Libra Lounge at floss.social. You can write to us at podcast at LibraLounge.org. But we should org. say that the Libra Lounge at um, floss.social is not an email address. That's the, that's your, the account you set up right, on the Fediverse. Right. That's right. That's our that's our that's our Fediverse account, and you can you can uh, post to that if you're on uh, Mastodon or one of the other uh, Fediverse uh, systems. And yeah, our email address is podcast at LibraLounge.org, uh, where you can drop us a line. You can also find our contact directly on the website LibraLounge.org. And, pound, wait, and wait, we are really Libre looking Lounge. for your feedback. Pound Libre Lounge on I- oh, Pound Libre Lounge on Freenode, and I believe that someone has set up a a matrix bridge. And we should talk about that at yeah, some point. Yeah. Um, um, but, but uh, yeah, it's feedback. It, we've, we've, there's so many ways. We, we yeah. have gotten feedback, but like Serge and I both keep saying like, you know, what are people thinking? Like, what do they think about this show? What, what do they like? A lot of the feedback has been, that was good. And, you know, we, we, we'd be happy to hear, um, you know, what specifically was good? What specifically could be better? Uh, what are you interested in us covering? Uh, yeah. And if, and if there's specific um, topics that you want to hear, um, we would really love that because that'll give us some direction where we want to take the show. Yep. So thank you. And just please send us your feedback and please yep. keep listening. And now we should really wrap up because we're about to hit between the two episodes three hours of talking about fundraising. Uh, so we hope you really yeah. like the idea of funding free software because you just listened to a bunch of it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thanks everyone. All Talk right. Take care soon. everybody. Bye. You've been listening to Libre Lounge. You can find and subscribe to us at LibreLounge.org. This podcast is released under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License. Our theme music is Bossa Nova by Joff, which is waved into the public domain under CC0 and which you can find on opengameart.org. If you'd like to support Chris Weber's work on this and other user freedom projects, you can donate at patreon.com forward slash C-W-E-B-B-E-R. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Hey, I'm Chris. Yep. What? Oh, <laughs> I'm Serge, I guess. No, I, wait, uh, you said this backwards. I, I actually screwed that up. <laughs> Not on purpose. Hey, we wow. finally get to put in one of those after the episode. Uh, we screwed up things. All right. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm, I actually just ended my recording, so.
<laughs> okay, well, we're going to keep that.